You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our Father, we're grateful that you have brought us together on this Lord's Day and fed us in worship with the Word and with the sacrament, and I pray that now you'll help us to have minds and hearts that are open and prepared to receive your Word and your law. Um, Give us uh, ears to hear, O Lord. Help the one teaching and those who are here to listen and do your your work by your presence, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you know, hard text, Lamentations. Um, This is... uh, one of those books of the Bible that can get buried. I want to talk a little bit about its location in our English Bibles, and then then I'll talk a little bit about the way in which I'm, I've been trying to frame um, you know this these books and the writings for just a tad. You know, Lamentations has historically been linked with the prophet Jeremiah, so that you're, if you're reading in our English Bibles, it goes something like Isaiah. Um, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, and you keep moving on. And that, that, there's a reason for that. I mean, Lamentations is one of these books that reflects very clearly um, a particular moment in time. Uh, a, a lot, and I know that sounds maybe a little bit um, uh, jarring to hear that, but there, there are a lot of books in the Bible or portions of the Bible that are really hard to locate in a particular moment in time. Uh, and for interpreters who, who feel like uncovering and unpacking that question, what was the original moment, who were the original, what was the original audience, what was the intention or at least the cause that gave rise to this literature, I mean, if those are driving concerns for the interpretation of texts, you know, the Old Testament can raise all kinds of, of challenges for you. I mean, here, like when was the book of Kings written? Uh, to, and what was, what was the, now people have answers to that. But it does, the, the text of Kings itself often seems uninterested. Here, here's one fun for you. When was Ruth written? When was Job written? And to what audience was Job written? So these, these questions can be raised quite a bit. But Lamentations is, is a book that sits very clearly in a particular moment in Israel's history. And in fact, it's, it's the before and after moment that in many ways defines the whole history of Judah. It's, you know, if you think from the standpoint of the ancient um, Jewish mindset, this would be their, you know, BCAD kind of line in the sand, demar- demarcating the before and the after. And that's, that's the moment of their exile. Um, that's, that's the moment when the southern kingdom of Judah, having averted the crisis of the northern kingdom and what happened to them with the, north, with the, with the Neo-Assyrians. So you remember we're talking about the 7th century B.C., the 800s. The Neo-Assyrians came in and destroyed the northern kingdom with its capital at Samaria, made its way down into the southern kingdom, moved up from the plain region to Jerusalem to destroy Jerusalem. And God, in a moment of miraculous providence, um, protects them and, and uh, sends a death angel into the camp of Sennacherib and 180,000 
troops of Sennacherib are slain in the middle of the night, and Sennacherib wakes up in the morning and says, um, this is my Genelette translation, let's go home, boys. Um, and they head back to, to Neo-Syria, and, and crisis averted. If you remember in the narrative in Kings and nestled in the middle of, of uh, the book of Isaiah, King Hezekiah was the king of Judah at the time that that cataclysmic moment occurred with the northern Assyrians. God protected them. And um, Hezekiah, at the end of this narrative, the end of his life, has this Babylonian envoy appear. And he, um, if you remember the story, he shows them all the treasury of the house of David and shows them the temple stores and, and basically kind of you know, flexes his his uh, royal muscles in front of these, these Babylonian visitors and, and Isaiah comes in and tells them, you, you know, you shouldn't have done that and, and, and here's the bad news. The bad news is those same Babylonians are going to come in and they're going to deport most of your grandchildren. And Hezekiah says, well, at least the Lord won't do that in my day and that's the end of Hezekiah's story. It's a really kind of challenging. I've been thinking a lot about that, frankly, with Hezekiah kicking down the problem of his moment to a later generation. This is a real real thing for people to think about in, in multiple spheres. Um, and so here you have you know, Hezekiah sort of raising that moment. Well, lamentation reflects the promise that Isaiah gave to Hezekiah about what would happen in time. Now the Babylonians have come. And in their coming, and, and think about this, we, we tend to think of the, the exile as a moment in time. 586 or 587 B.C., depending on who you read. Um, but it wasn't really just a particular moment in time. I mean, there was a cataclysmic moment, but it was a, it was a slow and long drip that led to the, the dam eventually breaking, beginning really around 596 B.C. when you had an original group of, of um young men from, from Israel, the best of, of Judah's young men, deported off with their king, Jehoiakim, uh, deported off to, um, to Israel, I mean to, to Babylon. That's where we find uh, Daniel uh, going off to Babylon and his three buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they were, they were deported around 596 B.C., they come back in 591 B.C. and they, they wreak more havoc. Um, and, and, a, and a second kind of exile that occurs in 591 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar goes back to Babylon. He's got trouble on the home front politically. And the people in Judah think, well, out of sight, out of mind, they begin to forget to pay their tribute, their vassal tribute, back to the suzerain, to the king, namely to Nebuchadnezzar. And these, these kings apparently just didn't, they, they didn't forget, like elephants, you know. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes back in 586 B.C., lays siege to the city for about two years. This is horrific. Um, so we've got all the time in the world. We'll just we'll just kind of camp out here, and nothing goes in, nothing goes out, and uh, and it just turns into an absolutely horrific scene. Jeremiah the prophet is the prophet that sits on top of that. He's the prophet that um, has to um, deliver the word of judgment to Judah in this cataclysmic moment. He's the one that's given the horrible burden to let the people of Judah know. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is actually an instrument of the Lord our God's judgment against us. 
I mean, few things could have been harder to say. In fact, it was so bad in certain parts of Jeremiah that Jeremiah preached a sermon to King Zedekiah, who was on the throne, once the final exile occurs. He preached a sermon to them and to their cohort, saying, this is the moment of God's judgment on us. Nebuchadnezzar is going to win. And they throw Jeremiah in prison, and they sentence him to death, only to have... Some of the elders of the land say, I just love this one of my favorite parts of the Old Testament, say, wasn't there a prophet about 150 years ago, 200 years ago, who said something similar, like Micah? And they quote Micah, chapter 3, verse 12, where Micah says, Zion will be raised and will be the object of destruction. So they quote Micah. Micah comes to Jeremiah's rescue, and they release Jeremiah. And they're like, listen, Jeremiah's giving us a hard word, but Micah did before as well. And so you have this fact. By the way, that's the only place in all of the prophets where one prophet actually quotes another prophet. There, there are hidden allusions and echoes all the way through. But an actual quote about Micah coming to the rescue for Jeremiah about 200 years later, it's, it's just a, it's a fascinating scene. And so Jeremiah gives them this word, and what makes Jeremiah's ministry so hard is that Jeremiah's ministry is one of judgment, and that's the call, by the way, of the prophets of the Old Testament, and it's, and it's a call that sits on us too, in the sense of discerning the time, discerning the moment. What moment is this that we're in right now, vis-a-vis God's redeeming grace and vis-a-vis God's judgment? But the false prophets like Hananiah were all enthusiastic about, ah, don't listen to Jeremiah. You've read Psalm 46 before, haven't you? I mean, you know that Zion cannot be shaken. We might have a little turmoil here and there. We've read the story about the, the, the Assyrians and Sennacherib. God delivered them then. He'll do it now. And here comes Jeremiah along, and he says, listen, your Zion theology about Zion never being shaken needs to be linked to the whole book of Deuteronomy. Do you remember Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy says if we do not follow God and his law, recognizing him as our Lord and Lord alone, then this whole land of ours and the temple and the walls, that's, that's ours by gift, not by right. And Jeremiah says this thing is coming to an end quickly. And Jeremiah, just, it's really kind of, you feel the, the burden of Jeremiah's ministry. Jeremiah has to live, think about this, into and under the weight of his own prophecy of judgment. He doesn't get to escape it. He doesn't give his message. I, mean, I, I grew up in a world, some of you may, may, may know this kind of world. I grew up in um, sawdust trail revivalist kind of Christianity. Um, and any of you sawdust trail people, I mean, I, I can remember even working at a Christian camp um, in the mountains of North Carolina and going down to First Baptist of Roswell, North Carolina, and listening to just preachers that, I mean, were, you felt like, you had stepped back in time. Um, take, you know, caution if you go into a setting like that and it's a patriotic Sunday. Because you mix, you mix God and Jesus and the flag in a church like that in the mountains, you, be, you better hold on because it's going to get rock as fast. Um, so I grew up in this sort of sawdust trail world, and I remember in the church of my upbringing, we would have traveling, and this is so weird for you cradle Episcopalians, but we would have <laughs> tra- 
traveling evangelists come to our church for Revival Week. Which now I look back on it and I think, it's kind of presumptuous to call a week Revival. I mean, that's up to God to bring revival. Like, we're, we're having revival next week. Uh, my, my answer to that now would be, well, we'll see. I mean, well, you know, I don't know. Um, but so here, here come, I can still see, see the, these traveling evangelists pulling up into our church parking lot with their big trucks and massive campers, and their you know, three kids would come bounding out, and, and, then, and then we'd have five nights straight of, of revivalistic preaching. And I'm telling you what, man, these were, these were the preacher globetrotters of the day. I mean, they were, they were amazing. Or, I mean, I, I know this is a strange world for some people, but amazing orticians. You, uh, you, um, Flannery O'Connor would kind of get to these guys. You know, they, 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 they just knew how to really go. And, and I, I can remember one preacher um, who died last year. Kind of remarkable. I knew this man very well as a young man. Um, preaching a sermon on hell and, and lowering a microphone that had a cord and saying, if you could hear what they were telling you now from hell, and he would lower this microphone. This is what they did. And he would just, yeah. I mean, they was like, I got saved every time they came, right? Um, so so but, was, and I, but my dad and I would joke about this because, um, you know, they would come in, and, and it was hellfire and brimstone. They would churn up the church. But you know what, they, you know what those guys did on Saturday morning? They left. I love it. Like they come in, they drop bombs, boom, like this whole church. And now, well, now off to the next church, and then to the next church. They didn't have to live into the dynamics of what it was that they just brought the hell, the fire, and the fury. Jeremiah didn't get to leave in his RV. Jeremiah felt and lived into the weight of what it was that he was called to say the hard word, tearing down, plucking up. Jeremiah chapter one, and he had to live into that. And the book of Lamentations is often linked to Jeremiah, but m- many will claim that Jeremiah wrote it. I mean, I, I feel no compunction to argue that, but canonically, Jeremiah and Lamentations sit like neighbors next to each other, and rightly so. Jeremiah, Lamentations can fit here. You're getting a sense of Lady Zion in the book of Lamentations, personified in her suffering under the force of God's judgment. And the language here in the book of Lamentations is profoundly powerful and moving and frankly disconcerting. As you hear Lady Zion expressing what it is for her to be living under um, the judgment of God in that particular moment of the exile. Now that's, that's Jeremiah and Lamentations sort of linked together. I've been kind of pushing a different canonical ordering, but I don't want to in any way diminish the one I just mentioned, Lamentations is the, fifth book, is the fourth book of the five small books on the little scroll that people call the Megalote. And we've followed these over the past several weeks together. The first little book on the Megalote is Ruth, following right after Proverbs 31. So you have the virtuous woman leading right into Ruth, who's described as a chayil isha, a virtuous woman in, in Ruth chapter 3. Ruth 3 opens up to Song of Solomon. And Song of Solomon is a book that speaks about the intimacy and the power of sexual marital love as really an allegory of God and his people. So you're getting, you're getting the height. Uh, you're, you're getting the, the, the joy of transcendence 
in a book like Song of Solomon about what it means to live in communion with Israel's God, then you move from there to think about this Ecclesiastes right in the middle of the five. So the, the balance here is really something. You have two, two, with Ecclesiastes sitting right in the middle, helping you navigate the complexity and the reality of human life in its chevel chevelim, in its fleeting, ungraspable character. And then from that, you move into lamentations. So think, if, if you kind of, I, I, I'm sometimes a visual learner, if you visualize the five books on the Megalote, you have Song of Solomon and Lamentations balancing it out in the middle. Isn't that interesting? Those two are, if I can think of it this, in these ways, the yin and the yang that you have going on within the book of, of, uh, of, the, of the Megalode. You have the, the, the height and the joy of transcendence, um, the, the smile of God's face, and the joy and the warmth that that invites. And you have Lamentations right there on the far side of Ecclesiastes that brings you into the depth of human despair. And by the way, just so that we're clear about this, the kind of despair that comes with wrestling with who God is and what God's actions are in the world as it pertains to human suffering. So here you have Lamentations linked here. You'll be interested to know that the book of Lamentations and the history of Judaism is read every year on the 9th of Av, which is around July and August, um, early part of July. Um, and that's when in Judaism they celebrate and they remember the destruction of the second temple in 70 AD by the Romans. Fascinating, isn't it? The temple is destroyed in 586. The temple is destroyed in 70 AD. And those cataclysmic moments are the moments by which Israel understands their before and their after. Rabbinic Judaism takes place and comes to life because the temple no longer is. So Lamentations is sitting right on the heart of what it means to sort of feel into, lean into, think into the dynamics of, of um, Old Testament faith and what faith um, actually looks like. And here's, here's how the book um, begins. The book begins with the word how. Isn't that something? Um, we, we have the title Lamentations. The, the, the Septuagint, the, the Vulgate calls it... Um, uh, 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 lamentations as well. The Hebrew title for the book is Eka, which is the simple Hebrew word for how. Why? Why did this happen? That's how the book begins. And there is there's a literary artistry. This is why you all need to come to Beeson and take some Hebrew and cut some years off of purgatory for you uh, later on. Um, <laughs> But uh, this is one of the things you just can't quite, and I hate to, this is a little bit of a teacher will to power move, but I'll, you know, I'll do it anyway. So one of the things you can't quite get in, in the English is the artistry of these five poems. You have five poems here that are distinct within Lamentations, each represented by a single chapter in our Bibles. And uh, Lamentations chapter 1, 2, and 4 are all acrostics. That works something like this. Verse 1, al aleph, begins with an aleph. Verse 2, begins with a bait. Verse, verse 3, begins with a gimel. And if I put that in our term, it's like the first, first verse, A. Second verse, B. Third verse, C. All the way down to Z. It's, it's, there's, a, there's an artistry here. And then when you get to the third chapter, you're going to love this, then it comes to you in triptych form. A, A, A. That's why there's 66 
verses in chapter 3. Because there's 22 letters in the alphabet. Multiply that times 3, you get 66. So it's AAA, BBB, CCC following through. Um, so there's a, there's a kind of literary artistry that's given to the reality of human suffering. That's worth thinking about, actually. The way in which um, literary artistry and, and sensitivity um, is in service of speaking of what might be um, some of the most um, uh, intimate and personal um, aspects of what it means to be a human being suffering under the hand of God's judgment. Um, and there's a, there's, an, there's a poetry to that. There's an artistry to that. You'll find this when you track Job. There's an artistry to Job and Job's lamentations as you enter into them because human suffering and, and poetry tend to be related to one to the other. It reminds me of this famous line that the Danish philosopher Kierkegaard said about the poets in our land. We know, and I think about you artist types here, uh, we know that for people to produce great art often requires their own suffering. This is a hard thing, but I mean, you, you start reading through the lives of some of the great artists, um, whether it's like Paul Cezanne. I mean, this is one of the greatest Impressionist artists of all. I mean, he's the father of Impressionism. And you read his personal story, the man was a mess, right? So you, you, Van, you know, Van Gogh, my son went to the Van Gogh exhibit, you know, that was here at the, at the museum. And I said, Franklin, when you go in, cover your ears, you know, protect them. Um, you know, I mean, you just know about the fact that sanity and sadness and madness are kind of related to artistic output. It's not always the case, but often the case. Kierkegaard said, we realize that as people who appreciate fine poetry and music, and art, and the truth is we're willing to sacrifice the poets for the beauty of what they give us. And we actually say, not out loud, but internally, how, how about suffer some more uh, for the sake of your artistry? So there, there's something about the link between suffering and, and art that we're even seeing in a book like Lamentations in its own poetic, poetic form. And what do we have in, in the book of Lamentations? We have Lady Zion, personified and suffering. She's mourning. Um, can we look at some of this together in chapter 1, verse 1? How lonely the sit, sits the city that was full of people. How, And notice all the images that are used. How like a widow has she become? So there you have, a, she's now the widow. She who was a princess among the provinces has now become a slave. So she's a female slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks among all her lovers. And this is an operative word in Lamentations. She has none to comfort her. Now again, this is where the Bible begins to talk to itself. You know that on the far side of the exile and the suffering that's presented in Lamentations, we have the prophet Isaiah in chapter 40, verse 1, saying, Offering what? as the first words to Lady Zion in her suffering. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to the heart of Jerusalem. Here, in the midst of the judgment and the suffering, you have um, the author saying, there's no one to comfort her. All of her friends have dealt treacherously with, with her. If you look at verse 15, we'll just jump around here, we see that now she's described as a virgin daughter. So look at what you see. The, the, the metaphors are moving all over the place around this, this sort of large uh, genus of, um, of the woman. She's a widow. She's a slave. 
Um, now in verse 15, she's a virgin daughter that the Lord has rejected. Why is all of this happening? That's the, that's the eka question. That's the, how did this happen? We'll look at verse 14. My transgressions were bound into your, to a yoke. By his hand they were fastened together, and they were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those uh, whom I do not understand. There's no comfort. Um, it's our transgressions that have been now bound into a yoke. We've, we've lived into, if, if, I can, if I can let the book of Romans um, kind of illustrate this, and I, 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 I quiver, maybe that's too melodramatic, but I, I do feel the weight of a chapter like Romans 1 that describes God's wrath as, as the simple removal of his presence. So I think we tend to think primarily, now we're seeing wrath here in terms of judgment um, that's very identifiable via the, the Neo-Babylonians, but, but there's also a sense in Romans 1 where God says, I, I let them, I gave them over to what they really wanted. That's the, I, I, I removed myself from them, my, my presence from them. And you have that sense here of God um, letting their transgressions now become their own yoke, what it was they really wanted um, what it is that they most wanted and desired has now become the thing that's ensnared them and enslaved them. There, there are, there's so much here just worth sort of pressing into and thinking about. Those things that we desire that turn into demands that then become idols, that, that's the stuff that then can enslave you. I mean, these are the classic Aesop fables, right, of the, of the, of the monkey that reaches his hand into the jar and grabs the grabs the candy or whatever it was that he wanted at the bottom of the jar and then can't get his hand out. He, he, he's stuck because of what it is that he's holding on to. And that's what you're seeing here. What we were holding on to in our rebellion and our transgressions, our idolatry, um, our, our turning in on the self became the yoke that then actually bound us. That's who we are now. So you've got the heaviness of this and then you move into chapter 2. and it, I mean, just, I mean it, doesn't, it doesn't get better. And verses 17 through 18 give us a sense of why the Lord has done this. The Lord has done, verse 17, what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has now thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of all of your foes. I mean, so you have a sense here within Lamentations chapter 2 that the, that the author leaning hard into the reality of the suffering and the dejection doesn't pull any punches when it comes to the cause of what's, being, of what's happening. This is happening because the Lord has been telling you this for generations. That's what, this is what Jeremiah said as well. I sent you prophets. You had Elijah and Elisha. And you've got, you had Micah and you had Isaiah and you had, you had these various prophets to the south and they were telling you to return to the Lord again and again. Jeremiah chapter 7, he goes down to the temple and he gives a, uh, gives a sermon, his first sermon in the temple, and he says, do not say anymore the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord this is. I mean, that's a, that's a good thing, I think, for liturgy types like us to hear. I mean, here's, here's an effect of uh, Jeremiah saying, don't trust in the sort of repetition of your liturgy if it's detached from faithfulness to the covenant. 
Don't, don't say those words anymore. And this is one thing that the prophets can be pretty hard at, saying things in effect like, you know, if you're, if you're going to live in rebellion and idolatry where love of God and love of neighbor are not operative anymore, then just, you know, stay home. Like, your, your songs don't mean anything to me in that. That's, that. The prophets aren't against liturgy and ritual, but they are against a religionized and empty liturgy and ritual. Don't, don't say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord this is, and then just continue to operate as if everything is okay. When you're not loving God and, and soul commitment to Him, first table of the law, and you're, and you're despising your neighbor. I mean, this, this is the challenge that the prophets are bringing. And, and here you have them in Lamentations in the middle of the suffering that the prophet or whoever's writing here is saying, we, we, we took, the Lord told you this is going to happen. This is not a surprise. This is, this, we told you this. You, you parents know what this is like, right? I mean, the, 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 the incredulous looks at times in our children's faces when we're like, we'll take that and we're going to leave that here for a while. And it's like, well, why are you doing that? Well, we've been telling you for a while and now's the moment where you're going to lose it. So that's the, you've got the feel here. So the, the book moves in this direction, right? Again and again, kind of laying laying the heaviness of this out. Then you get to chapter 3. And chapter 3 is worth parking for a few minutes. We won't, we won't get through all the book, but I want you to just look at chapter 3. Now shifts metaphors. So you had Lady Zion, Daughter Zion, Virgin, Female Slave, Widow. Now you have the first person singular man of the community who stands up in the midst. We don't know who this person is. This is representative of all the suffering of that's collective. And, and the Bible will do that all the time. The Bible will link together the individual and the corporate all the time. You have a corporate voice that's speaking, and an individual can receive that for him or herself. You'll have an individual voice speaking, and the corporate community can adopt that voice for themselves. So there's a, there's a fluidity that happens within the Bible, especially in the Psalms. You feel this between the individual I and the corporate we. It's the kind of, it can move back and forth. We're never separated from our community. As much as you might like to be an island unto yourself, it's just we weren't made or intended to be that way. And I like the island idea the more the older I get. Chapter 3, verse 1, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He's broken all of my bones. I just want to read this to you. He's besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He's made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. Again, a lot going on here. You've got this Again, this sort of opaque, fuzzy land in the Bible, especially in the, in the realm of lamentation, of lament, between the living and the dead. We tend to have hard and fast categories in our world, in the modern world, between life and death. Um, there's a fuzziness within the ancient mindset between life and death. You could be on this moment here that Israel is experiencing together collectively is Sheol. It's the absence of God's smile on them. This is a living hell, and that's, that's the description that's being used here. Um, so it's, it's heavy, and you have this first-person voice that's speaking, and here's the, this is the Christianity, you know, uh, graduate-level course uh, that you have to sort of think through. Um, the person who's writing this 
um, is, is not confused as Job was not confused. But the fact that the suffering of their moment has something to do with God. I was like, I can't suspend God from this and just sort of say God, God would have nothing to do with this. The, the devil's doing this or, or the wickedness of the world or it's the cultural system or the political... No, it's, they, they all know that in some way, even if we can't maybe lay out a nice, clean, philosophical account of all the A, B, C leading to D, but in some way, God is not detached from this moment. He's right at the center of it. He's the one who's bringing this to me. He's walked me about. I can't escape for seven. I call my cry for help. He, he shuts out my prayers. He's blocked my ways with blocks of stone. He's made my paths crooked. A lot of Isaiah references here. And now I start getting with metaphors. He's a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turns my steps to the side. He tears me into pieces. He's bent his bow. He set me as a target for his arrow that he could drive it right into my kidneys, arrow of his equipment. That's the ancient way of saying right in the gut. I've become a laughing stock. <laughs> Look at verse 19. I'm remembering all my afflictions and my wanderings and the wormwood and the gall, and my soul continually remembers all of this and it's bowed down within me. So you, this is right in the middle of the book. kind of sits, sits right in the middle of the, all of Lamentation. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Isn't that remarkable to think that in the midst of a moment like this, where, and we won't even be able to get to it because of time, but in chapter 4, whether it's real or not, I mean, you, you have the most horrific things that anyone could say are being said in chapter 4 about mothers having to turn to their children for a food source in chapter 4. I mean, it's, it, it's, it, it's the kind of thing where you, you watch some of these movies like Hotel Rwanda, um, or you begin to kind of think about what's happening to um, the Uyghurs in China, or what's happening to whatever, whatever group you know, that's been, and, and, you, and you start to hear accounts of what happened to the Christians in northern Iraq with ISIS. And you, you, can't, you, you don't have the capacity for it. I mean, I, I know that in the, in the world of, of the cognitive sciences and in the learning world where I operate, they talk about this thing called cognitive load. I think about this a lot with my students. Cognitive load, and it's a subjective thing, we're all different on this, but at a certain moment in time, you as an individual, your cognitive load is met, learning's done. Like, you know, we can, I, as a teacher, I can keep talking, blah, 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 but the learning is over, right? Um, and if you're interested in teaching, that kind of matters. You want to know, is, is the learning over now? You need to probably leave. Um, I also, but I, I'm making this as a generalism, but I, there's an emotional load, too. Right? And we all know it. We're getting negative stuff at us all the time in the world. I mean, and, and you know that you only have the capacity for so much. And so that's when you hear about, I mean, let's just be honest, you know, your second cousin once removed, and their husband just got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and you know cognitively that that is, I mean, their lives have been turned upside down. But they're so far removed from you that it's like, and you're just moving on. We, we, we have an emotional load. Um, so the, the, the heaviness of what's going on here, it's like we just have to kind of keep moving on so that we can keep the boat afloat. But Lamentations is sitting on the horrors of humanity. 
So I, I want you to feel the weight of that because it's out of that, um, not just a bad day, we're talking about horror and trauma, that the author can say, in the middle of that, I still have hope. And it's, and it's, not, a, um, it's not a sentimental hope. This book, has, Lamentations, has no room for sentimentality. There's no space for that. There's, no, there's nothing saccharine about this at all. It's real, it's gritty, it's earthy. And in the middle of the book, you have the author saying that in the middle of this, I, I have to caution with the mind. I, that's worth pondering. I, I've, I've got, you cognitive behavioral people here will kind of know this language. I've got to talk to myself in the middle of this. I've got, I've got to not allow the narrative of the moment, which is all I can live into, because it's just my day-to-day, I can't let that be the only narrative. I've got to talk to myself about the truth, even in the midst of my suffering, even when God's the cause of my suffering. And this is what I'm calling the mind, that his steadfast love will never cease, that his mercy has never come to an end, that every morning there lies in newness, that his faithfulness is great, that the Lord is my portion and I will have hope in him. And listen to this promise out of the book of Lamentations. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Can I give you a... um, a challenge with the book of Lamentations. Maybe maybe we save this for Lent. How about that? I'll give you a, a little homework assignment for Lent. Take the book of Lamentations during the season of Lent and read the whole book on the lips of Jesus. The whole thing. He's the voice speaking from beginning to end. Let the voice of Jesus be the voice you hear reading Lamentations. Because when Jesus on the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22, and Psalm 22, for my money, is an individual psalm that's related to the whole tradition of Israel's lamentations, of their suffering, of the righteous ones who are suffering. To read this on the lips of Jesus, to know and to be encouraged even in our moment, that Jesus said these words, think Gethsemane, think cross. He said these words out of the anguish of his own soul. And the book of Hebrews tells us that he did that so that he could pray for you right now with knowledge. Jesus enters into Lamentations. He even enters into the hope of Lamentations chapter 3. I will not let go of the goodness of my Father. I will hold on to his promises, even Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame. And he entered into that so that he can pray for you. Even now, in accord with what this book is saying about the reality of human existence in a world that's still marked by sin and suffering, death and the devil. So Lord, I pray that in our own moments of lamentation and they will come again and we are probably in many ways in them now 
that you will help us to hear your voice, O Jesus, gentle and kind and courageous as it is, taking these words on yourself, entering into the realm of human suffering, and knowing, O Lord, that you communicate to us your faithfulness and your steadfast love, your great mercies that are new every morning, if you've demonstrated to that most pronouncedly in, in Jesus. And I pray that you'll fill us with hope with this. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.